0: He is risen. He is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Those are the words we're going to be proclaiming for some six or seven weeks here with great joy every Sunday. This risen Lord appears to his church in Revelation chapter one and says, Fear not. I am the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the Alpha and the Omega. I am the living one. I died and behold, I am alive forevermore. And this dynamic that we see Jesus proclaiming to his church in Revelation 1 is a similar dynamic that we see in our, our gospel reading this morning. It's that the reality of the resurrection and the reality of human fear are placed side by side in order to interact with one another. So, what I would like to talk about this morning is well, the reality of human fear that Jesus names fear not. And then the reality of the resurrection, the fact that he is alive and reigns forevermore, and then ask that question, how does the reality of the resurrection speak good news to our very real and raw human fears? So with that in mind, would you pray with me as we begin? Living Lord Jesus, may the words of my mouth, in the meditations of our hearts, Be pleasing and acceptable in your sight, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. It's one of the remarkable features of the Gospel of Mark, (laughs) that it ends not on a triumphant note of courage or of hope or joy, but it ends with fear and the silence that fear so often induces. So look at verse 8 with me. And they went out and fled from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them. That's really strong language. It had seized them, overcome them. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were very afraid. And this is a theme that we see is not new to the Gospel of Mark. It's not new to the Jesus story. I mean, Mark chapter 4 is the classic example. Uh, Jesus is asleep in a boat with his disciples amidst the turmoil of a, a turbulent storm. The disciples are freaking out, and they finally wake up their, their beloved rabbi and say, Jesus, aren't you going to do anything about what's going on? And Jesus, in in a sort of calm and serene nature that comes with knowing that he is in control of all creation stands up and speaks peace to the wind and to the waves and then he looks at his disciples and says oh you of little faith why are you so afraid we see this throughout the gospel of mark that the opposite of faith is not doubt it's fear and i find this really interesting especially in the season that we're living in Some may call it a pandemic of fear. It's not just a physical pandemic, but an emotional pandemic that many are experiencing. And just one of the signs of this is that in 2020, Americans bought three times as many guns in the year 2020 as they did in the year 2019. It's no longer just a fear of a common enemy. There's somehow amongst us a deep seated fear of one another. And this has raised a whole host of questions for us personally in our civic life together. Like, how do we combat fear personally and corporately and rebuild relationships of trust and communities of trust going into the future? And this is a question that has even reached the upper levels of kind of business executives as they're thinking about how to run their corporations. I read an article in the Forbes magazine just this last week that was entitled Building a Culture That Fuels Courage not fear, how do we do that? So one of the questions that I think this passage uh, kind of causes us to to ask of ourselves this morning is why do we encounter so much fear in our own hearts and in others and in the communities to which we belong? And no doubt all of us could tell personal stories of what this looked like in our life, all the way from being a child who's afraid of the dark uh, to being an adult who's afraid of failure. From the fear of being alone and unheard to the fear of being known and unloved. And although we often hope that new circumstances and seasons are gonna relieve us of our deep-seated fears, we we know that fear has a funny way of adapting itself and maintaining its grip on us. So for example, in this season, just a year ago, it was a fear of how long is this pandemic gonna last? And now it's a fear of like, what's life gonna look like on the other side of this pandemic? Maybe a year ago, it was fear of isolation and loneliness, and now it's fear of what is it going to look forward to, what is it going to look like to move forward in community and in in certain relationships after so much water's passed under the bridge? Maybe at first, it was a fear of being misunderstood, and now I think many people are just afraid of being hated. Someone once said that despair says your friends have failed you. Discouragement whispers give up. Doubt mutters, it can't be done. But fear shouts to the human heart, don't try, don't risk it. Our passage tells us that that those women were afraid on the first Easter Sunday morning. And one wonders why. Were they afraid of being dismissed because they were women in that culture? They knew of the human instinct to distrust truth if it comes from certain people? Were they afraid of what people would think? They knew that talking about an empty tomb would go against the grain. Were they afraid of being labeled and and judged? Or were they just simply afraid of change again? I mean, think about how much had happened over the last number of years, meeting this Jesus, ministering with him, following him, hearing his words of the kingdom and this building hope and excitement for what the world could become with Jesus here. All for it to come crashing down in the events of Holy Week and and seeing him buried in the tomb, could they take one more twist or turn that is unexpected in their lives that reminds them that once again they're not in control? Whatever the reason for their fear was that morning, this passage invites us, like them, to be honest about our own fears. And this passage places side by side with this deep, raw human emotion, the concrete reality of the resurrection, the empty tomb. Our passage tells us that there is something or someone more powerful than fear at work in the world. And it focuses on this by drawing our attention to what the women saw that morning. We see this throughout the gospel. The women saw the events as Jesus died. They saw where Jesus was laid in the tomb. They went on the first day of of the week to see the tomb. They saw that the stone was rolled away. They saw the young man who was on the right side of the tomb. And then the angel invited them to see the empty space, space where Jesus' body once lay dead. And then the angel tells them to go to Galilee where they will soon see the risen Jesus. So while the gospel does not shy away from the very real and raw emotions of the, of the women on that morning, our attention is drawn first and foremost to not what is felt, to but what is seen, or in this case, what is not seen. He has risen, we are told, verse 6. He is not here. The physical absence of Jesus' body is intended to be a sign of his living presence. And we're told that the three women were totally unprepared for this this absence, (laughs) let alone this living presence that they were to encounter soon. The first few verses of our text kind of invite us to enter imaginatively into their experience, to imagine what it was like to experience the trauma of watching your child or or your friend dehumanized before jeering crowds. And then just hoping for one last chance to show Show his body some dignity. Show his body the dignity it was so brutally denied on Good Friday. And so they go to buy spices and anoint his body in one last act of love. We're invited to imagine the experience of leaving the house for the first time in a couple days. Red-eyed, exhausted from weeping, eyes squinting as they're glimpsing the morning sun. Eyes preparing to see their lifeless friend for the last time eyes that see that the world has carried on is with business as usual while your world has come crashing down and then we're invited to imagine what it was like as as people so often experience when they have a, a mother or a father or a child or a loved one die there's that weird combination of piercing grief and then practical financial decisions that have to be made and then pragmatic arrangements And so as these women take the very practical steps of of buying expensive spices and and making arrangements for the tomb to be rolled away so they could anoint Jesus' body, they show no signs of hope that Jesus would be anything but dead on that morning. And then we're told in verse 4 that they looked up and they saw that the stone had been rolled back and it was very large. And entering the tomb, verse 5, they saw a young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed. And he said to them, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. The women know it, they saw it. Well, he is risen. He is not here anymore. See the place where they laid him? Go, tell his disciples Peter... That he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. So the eyewitness testimony of these women is set before us, sets before us the reality of the empty tomb. God has vindicated his son, we are to learn. God has affirmed everything that his son was and did and said, we are to learn. God has affirmed that Jesus is the way and the truth and the life. And it's only after setting this concrete fact of what the women saw or what they did not see that the narrative suddenly shifts to what the woman felt in verse 8. In other words, it's trying to say to us that the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the grave is the context for understanding their deep and raw human emotion, even fear. And so that leads us to the the very practical and pastoral and personal question. How does the reality of the resurrection speak good news to human fears, to our fears? And I want to name just a handful of things here briefly. First, the resurrection says Jesus is alive and therefore completely trustworthy. I mentioned at the beginning that that in the Gospel of Mark, the opposite of, of faith is not doubt, but it's fear. And so one thing the resurrection is intended to do in the people of God, what Easter Sunday is intended to do in the people of God is to instill in them a sense of faith and renewed trust in Jesus, the living Lord. The tomb is empty. That means God has vindicated Jesus. And that means you can trust that everything Jesus is about, God is about. You can trust that everything Jesus said, God said through him. You can trust that everything Jesus did, God did through him. And you can trust that everything Jesus said he would do, God is going to do in him. So the resurrection says to us, Jesus is alive, and you can rest your whole life on this fact. You can trust Jesus Christ with all your heart without reserve. The second thing the resurrection says is it says Jesus is alive and therefore he is personally present to you. Fear not, says Jesus in Revelation. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died and behold, I'm in the middle of seven lampstands, golden lampstands. And these golden lampstands we discover in chapters two and three of Revelation represent the different churches that the book of Revelation is addressed in the ancient world, in these diverse Greco-Roman cities. And so what we get this picture of is that the risen Jesus is not just risen and absent from his people, but that he is risen and he stands right in the middle of his churches. Each and every community of people where two or three are gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst, says Jesus. And I think this is really key for us personally in understanding this. Because how was it that the women went from being stuck in the silence that their fear was causing them, to then having the freedom, which we hear in other gospels, and the courage to go out and proclaim the good news of the empty tomb to the disciples and to the world? They were the first evangelists. Our passage shows us that just seeing the empty tomb was not enough for the women to go from fear to courage. Our passage shows us that the assurance of the angel was not enough. Our passage shows us that the verbal word that Jesus is alive from the angel was not enough. They had to encounter Jesus himself to move from fear to courage. That's why the angel says, go back to Galilee where Jesus waits for you. Because it's only the personal presence of the Lord that has the power to liberate us from our fears. We must actually encounter Jesus, the living and loving Lord in our midst. As we preach scripture, as we pray, as we celebrate the sacraments when we gather, all these things are, are simply means by which the living Lord himself meets his people and they come into lively and loving contact with him. So we're told the resurrection says Jesus is alive, and therefore he is personally present to his people in every place and every time. Third, the resurrection says, because Jesus is present to you, you have not lost what you most deeply love. Augustine once said that we're afraid for one of two reasons. We're afraid of either losing a good we love, or of not attaining a good that we hope for. And the resurrection says, you have not loved Jesus. You have not loved your greatest good. You have not lost your greatest good. He is alive and he's present to you. And the resurrection says, he is the first fruits of the new creation. The new creation is coming and Jesus is bringing it. Like everything you hope for, you will attain. In other words, your ultimate good is secure in this risen Jesus. You will never lose what you most deeply love if what you most deeply love is Jesus. And this we discover is the great source of Christian security and joy all through the ages, no matter what trials come. Number four, the resurrection says there is forgiveness for those who have betrayed Jesus. And my goodness, this is good news, friends. There is goodness for those who have betrayed Jesus. We see this in verse 7. The women are told to go tell the disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. Now, if you remember, in the Gospel of Mark, Galilee is where Jesus' whole ministry was launched in the first place. Jesus came from Galilee to be baptized by John in, in, in the wilderness. Uh, Jesus went back to Galilee where he first proclaimed, behold, the kingdom of God is at hand, repent and believe the gospel. It was at Galilee that, that Jesus, for, along the Sea of Galilee, that Jesus called his first disciples. And it was in and around Galilee that Jesus first healed the lame and, and cast out demons and, and taught in parables. And so by calling the disciples and Peter to go back to Galilee, it's as if Jesus is saying, look, guys, I know you've had some failures lately but let's go back to the beginning with one another and begin this discipleship thing again jesus speaks to those who abandoned him and denied him in his most desperate hour of need and he says would you come back to galilee and become my disciples again and so we're told right here at the end that there's forgiveness and there is new possibilities for those who have even denied and betrayed jesus And finally, the resurrection says, death has no reason to be proud. Death be not proud. And here, I'll just end by reading some line, John Chrysostom. John says, let no one fear death anymore, for the death of our Savior has set us free. Hell took a body and discovered it was God. It took earth and it encountered heaven. It took what it saw and where is your sting? Oh hell, where is your victory? Christ is risen and you, O death, are annihilated. Christ is risen and the evil ones are cast out. Christ is risen and the angels are rejoicing. Christ is risen and life is liberated. Christ is risen and the tomb is emptied of its dead. For Christ, having risen from the dead, has become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. To him be the glory and the power and the dominion and the honor forever and ever. Amen.